up a little bit because I'm not going to go too far back into that at all. I do want to read the scripture again because as followers of Jesus, as, as believers in a one true God, this is our discoverable and knowable truth. This is what we believe to be our objective truth source that comes from God. Paul said this in verse 19 of Romans 1. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. Oh, there's the rub. So they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks as they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. So we made the assertion last week that we know truth, whether it's subconscious or conscious. There is something, there is a void in our lives of which we long for. Something that comes from outside of us, something that is there beyond our own means, beyond our own intellect, and beyond our own experiences. And so whether we want to recognize that it's there or not, we know that it's there. Paul says something more obvious. He says that the truth is discoverable and knowable by you and me because God has made it obvious to us and to them. And he said that in a practical way, you can look at the earth and the sky and everything that is around you that sometimes is incomprehensible to the human mind and to our experience and to our depth of knowledge and know that there is a God and something beyond us that put that there. And so if there is a God who is a all powerful from this passage and who is eternal and is beyond us, And if there is a God who created not only us, but created the world around us of which we have no control often. If that is true, then we can trust that same eternal, all-powerful, infinite God to give us an objective truth to live our lives by. If that's true, then it's true that he's the source of truth. Why do we say that? Why do we need that? Why do we go to that? Why do we long for that? Well, we were created that way. Um, There is an innate sense of understanding right and wrong. What's murder in one place is considered to be murder in another. Whether that person adopts that in that specific people group or in that culture or in that anthropology, whether they want to adopt the fact that that's wrong or not, we know as human beings that that is wrong. And so that is a universal truth that covers us. And so that came from somewhere, that innate understanding or or non-understanding that kicks against that comes from somewhere. We would say that it comes from God, that he created us and that because he is the creator and because he is eternal and because he is the source of truth, then we can go to him for what is right and what is true objectively. Why do we need an objective truth? Because as we said last week, we are a subjective people. We are a people who are controlled by our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, our experiences, our hangups, our hurts, our idiosyncrasies, the things in which we way we see the world or the way in which certain things and events and circumstances have shaped us. So when people are subjective and are often fueled by that, and we said the reason why we know God but yet chose not to worship him as God is because that's when the subjectivity comes into play. We don't feel like it. 
And I made the idea last week or made the statement last week that I don't make ideas. I, I make st- statements. Sometimes they're, they're, they're good. Sometimes maybe they're not so good. Um, but I made the statement last week uh, that um, subjectivity is dangerous uh, because I can't trust my feelings all the time. And you can't trust your feelings all the time. I'm going to be honest with you. Oftentimes my feelings are wrong. Oftentimes my, my emotions, as they get the better of me, are not correct in assessing a situation. Oftentimes I project. Oftentimes I'll look at a situation and size it up, say it to somebody else, and they'll be like, you are completely off base. That is not what's going on here. When I was in counseling, and we used to talk about the subjectivity-objectivity thing, it's usually meant to help counsel people with acute anxiety and, and disorders and issues uh, that we struggle with in this life that are based on false assumptions. We used to do this little reflection thing with them and would draw up a scenario of two people walking into a grocery store. And one person's walking into a grocery store and another person's walking in and one person waves at the other person walking in. The other person does not wave at them. They know each other. They are friends. And so then as they enter the grocery store, the person that did not wave goes out of sight. The person that waved goes out of sight as well, shops, and leaves. And then at some point, most likely, the person who waved goes home and tells most likely their their wife, if they have one, friends, if they have those, that this person, what? You guys can fill in the blank. Did not wave at me. And because they did not wave at me, what does that no doubt mean when our feelings interpret it? They don't like me anymore. And I must have done something to them. <laughs> what did I do? Or if you're a guy, you go into this whole, well, fine then. I don't talk to you anyway. I didn't like that guy to start with. And what's amazing about our subjectivity is it is not done in a vacuum. It is not contained. So we express our subjectivity and our feelings and our emotions. And then probably, whether we want to or not or intend to or not, we probably shape someone else's thinking about that person because they didn't wave at me in the grocery store. Here's what happens when the subjective person finds objective truth. Finally, you run into the friend. Finally, you're going to talk to them. I'm going to talk. I'm sick of talking on Facebook. Sick of these posts. Sick of passively, aggressively putting stuff out there. Sick of talking to my friends about it. I'm sick of being worried sick. And I'm sick of being anxious. And I'm sick of thinking about what I did. And finally, you go to the source. And you say, hey, just throwing it out there at Publix the other day. Walking in, saw you. I feel like you saw me and I waved at you. Why didn't you wave back? I didn't see you. And all this time, I've been going through such anguish, such heartache, such torture and pain, thinking that my friend doesn't like me, can't stand me, I did something, I offended, they don't want to be my friend anymore. And the whole time, the objective truth of it all was, they just didn't see you. See how that works? That's why we can't trust our feelings. Because oftentimes our feelings don't, and our emotions and our subjectivity as human beings don't lead us to truth. But objectivity and the source of objectivity and the objective truth and foundation of our lives given to us by someone greater and more transcendent and more powerful and eternal 
does possess that truth. That, that we can say, okay, I don't trust my feelings, but you know what? I can trust this. And I can place my life in, in its hands. And I can seek to discover and seek to know. And when I know, and he imparts that to me, then I can stay there and I can hold on to that. And I can live by that. That's why we need an objective truth. Because we're not objective people. God gives this to us. We, I said this, I'll repeat it. I won't stay here. We don't naturally seek truth. We seek affirmation. We tend to believe the things that validate our feelings, not the thing that will ultimately set us free. Paul unpacks this. He says, they knew God because it was obvious. But they chose not to worship him as God. They chose to worship him as something else. And so when we don't want to accept truth, we said this last week too, then then we'll make up things to help support and validate our feelings and our affirmation. And so when we do that, the more we make up, the more lies we believe. It, it makes me think of the Seinfeld uh, you know, episode and the, and the scene from Seinfeld where Jerry and George are talking about this situation. And Jerry is just a little more sanctimonious than George in his life. And he tends to lie less. But he's trying to get out of this situation that he doesn't want to be in. And he's talking to his buddy George and his buddy George hatches this lie, this elaborate scheme and lie to help Jerry get out of it. And he's convinced him that that's what he has to do. And Jerry gets up to leave and, and George says, Jerry, remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> See, that's, uh, but, but you know, it's comedy. But you know what? It's, it's, it's truth in, in art. It's truth in humor. Because really that's kind of what we do. The longer you think you're going to believe something to be true, perhaps it will be after a while. And the more we convince ourselves that something is true when in fact it is not, it is just simply something that is subjective to us or tailored to our affirmation or our feelings, then the scriptures are very clear about this. Our minds and our hearts start to become confused and dark. And when our minds and our hearts are confused and dark, it's very difficult to process truth anymore. And not just truth about the thing in which we've shut our minds and lives off to. Whether that's God, maybe you're here today, and that, that whole truth in and of itself, the way I started this, does not land on your heart. Whether that's God or whether that's something you just don't want to accept or I don't want to accept or something that we don't want to feel is true, whatever it may be, whether it's something small or something really big, the more in which we believe a lie and the more in which we suppress the truth. Remember, Paul said, that's why they do evil. That's why we do bad things because we suppress the truth. We willingly and actively ignore it. And the more we ignore it and the more we put it aside, the more our hearts and our minds are living according to a lie and are dark and confused. You know, it's not easy to hear this. It's not easy to inspect it. But the reason why we make the, the assertion about freedom is, is that when we trust someone outside of us who's greater than us, who's given us this truth, and, and who has given us this truth for his own glory and for our good, for your good, for my good, for our church's good, for your family's good, for your marriage's good, for your friendship's good, for your work relationship good for just your work activity good for your decision making good for your morality 
good, for your ethics-shaped good. This is what God does for us. This is what he gives us in the form of his truth that's objective, that is beyond us, that is for his glory and for our good. He does this so that we can be set free. First of all, so that we can be set free from ourselves and our own subjectivity and our own, our own emotions and our own feelings. Sometimes, I don't know about you, if you feel the same way as me, but I feel trapped in my own feelings sometimes in my own emotions. And sometimes those emotions can become very digressive and very tumbling down. Sometimes I, I, I don't want to be in my own thoughts sometimes. And so because of that, I, I want to pursue this God who has given me this truth and this objectivity and that is for my good so that when I discover it and when I begin to know it and then when I apply it and hold on to it with everything that I have in my life and live it out, I can experience his freedom. Freedom just maybe in my own head, my own heart. And when I can experience that, imagine how much more I benefit in my life and how much more people benefit and then ultimately how much more the kingdom in which God calls me to build and his purposes in the world benefit. What is this objective truth? So Paul, same writer, is writing to Timothy. We've talked about this before because we've unpacked the scripture about that he's, this is probably one of Paul's last writings. He's in prison, he's gonna die, and he eventually does. He's writing to Timothy, a guy he groomed. The Bible says he considers him like a spiritual son. He, he mentored him, he loved him. They traveled together, they did ministry together. They've been separated, he longed for him. Uh, Timothy visited him in prison. They're, they're, they're incredible friends. They're brothers. He's writing to him in, in the two letters, teaching him, yes, how to pastor, but teaching him how to love and shepherd people, yes, teaching him how to teach, teaching them how to approach them, but also just imparting wisdom into his life as a man and as another follower of Jesus. So after he gets done telling him all this stuff and instructing him in all these ways, he gets to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and says about the scriptures. He's already commended him for being a person of faith. He's already commended him for being a person who has sought truth. He's already commended him for a person who has discovered it, who knows it, and has lived it out. He's already commended. He said, in fact, you remember and live as if you were taught that way from childhood and you were by your mom and by your grandparents and you have lived this out. In a sense, in a way, he's relationally patting him on the back saying, you have done well in that way. They should be proud of you. But then he gets down to 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 16 and says this about truth and about the scriptures, the source of objective truth. I said at the end last week that what's great about this and what should give you an I hope and comfort and peace is that God did not call us to this life to solve a puzzle. Things are mysterious. We don't understand everything about God. We don't understand sometimes the mysteries of certain nuances of our faith. And that's okay. That's why God wants us to keep pressing in. I remember talking to an agnostic one time that said, I don't want to believe because, because in your worldview, that if you believe the Bible, then what else is there left to learn? <laughs> and, so, and so that would be the end of it. I, I would feel like it would be anti-intellectual to believe 
because that would be over. It's all right there. Oh, can you imagine? And I quoted in that, that quote from C.S. Lewis. It said, when you, essentially, when you begin to walk with God by faith and he rescues you from your sin and sets you on this course for eternity, that that's just the beginning of the journey of unlocking truth and knowing and discovering and learning and experiencing like never before. And I don't know if you feel that way in your faith journey. I know that that has so been so true for me. I don't think I'm any further down the road in knowing these things at such a deep level than I was when I first placed my faith in Christ. I, I am because the scriptures teach us and mature us and help us and, and life does that and truth will do that for us. But to know God in his vastness and in that way, no human being will fully know. But he doesn't leave us to solve a puzzle on our own. And he doesn't leave us to walk into this vastness without something to guide us. And we made the assertion that that seat of objective truth is his scriptures. I'll read Paul's uh, scripture here because this says it better than I ever could. He says to Timothy and to us, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That kind of covers the whole of our lives. But he continues, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That also kind of covers it too. Let me, let me read it one more time. All scripture, all is breathed out by God, the source, and profitable, helpful, useful, effective for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It kind of gives the, the picture of God breathing life into man in Genesis. You know, we will have a greater love and honor and respect for life when we receive and know and hold to the truth that the life in which was given to us was breathed into us by God. And it says that, that when he formed man from the dust from the ground, that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He expired his essence of life into man, into you and me. He gave us this gift of life as it was breathed out from him. When I realized that that's my life and your life and that's how life happens and that it is this beautiful gift of God from him, then that will lead me to have a greater value for life. For mine, for yours, and for anyone's. But it is the same word picture of which he's saying he gave us the scriptures. The Bible says that it is breathed out. You know, we hear the word sometimes. If you've never been in church, this could be maybe the first time you've heard this. If you've been in church a long time, you've heard this a lot. You've heard that the Bible is inspired by God. And it is 
inspired and inspirational. And yes, it is inspired by God, but really from the scriptures themselves, in this context, it would probably be better to say that the Bible is expired by God. That he has expired life into it and made it alive and effective and profitable and useful for everything, all of it. So he exhaled his life into it so that it would be alive. Some We have military uh, professionals in this church. We have a lot of uh, medical professionals already in this core group of people, which is really awesome. And I just love to sit and talk to them and hear their stories and, and um, hear their experiences because it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a job, I promise, from the medical side, I could not do. So I admire you greatly. But I remember uh, when I was on staff at the university, I had to get a university certification to be a counselor. I was a campus pastor and a counsel. So to do that, you go, have to go through a ring of certifications. One of my certifications was a CPR class. How many of you have ever taken a CPR class? John, you've never taken a CPR class? That's hard to believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, right. I'll choose to believe that. Um, so, um, gosh, a lot of you. Those are fun, aren't they? Sitting on top of a dummy, you know, learning how to do the compressions. Yeah, and then learning how to what? Pinch the nose. And... Oh, it's so not awkward to do this in front of a group of people. And I had an instructor that was really excited about CPR. And so he was in your face and, hey, let's do this. All right. And so he had a method where he would make everybody watch and, and you had to get on the dummy and you had to do your thing after a couple of instruction pieces that weren't, what, in my opinion, very thorough. When it came to my time, I'm like, I need some more teaching. Um, I need to wait for a couple more days. And I have a tad social anxiety, so it was just kind of one of those things. And uh, everybody's standing around, and I'm on top of this dummy. I'm doing my compressions, and this guy's, like, cheering me on. He's like, great job. Good job. He's like the motivational speaker. Hey, that's fantastic there. This is good. And he could see that myself, and I was fine with the compressions, you can make fun of me all you want. It's fine. That's why I'm telling the story. He's got a good lunch conversation. That dude is weird. I was fine with the compressions. When it comes to that, you know, that, that mouth-to-mouth thing, what's crazy, though, is how so vital that is. The guy stopped one of our classmates who he could also see that it was kind of, it's just awkward. He stopped us all. And in his very excitable way, in his very passionate way, he said, guys, remember, I get it. It's, if you're ever in this situation, adrenaline will kick in and, 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 and perhaps, you know, hopefully our training that we're going to give you will kick in and, and you'll just do it. And, and you won't, hopefully won't think about it. And, and Jamie's a nurse, she, she's shaking her head, yes, so I'll go with that. And, and I agree with him. So you just have to do it. But he could see that it, it was awkward. But he said, guys, remember, if you're ever in this situation, you are breathing life into someone. You are helping them, trying to help them live again. 
Because if you're doing CPR on them, they're not breathing. They're not, by definition in that moment, alive. You know what's so crazy? What, I mean, what, don't you just love great instructors? It was so amazing. It was that one truth, that one little tidbit, just all my inhibition went away. And the next time it was up for me to pump and, and then do the CPR and, and pinch the nose and breathe into the mouth, I was doing it as if someone's life depending on it, and I was breathing actual the breath of life into them. This is what the Bible says God did for us, not only in giving us life, but gave us the scriptures in that way. That he did it as if you couldn't live and I could not live without it. And says, this is your objective truth. This is so good for you. All of it. And because the scriptures are useful and effective, they are so because God is the source. If I was the source, they all wouldn't be useful or effective in that way, in an objective way, in a universal way, and in a good way in which God gave it to us. So because they are expired and he has exhaled his life, his breath, into his truth and into his word that he has given to us, that's why it is inspired for us and expired to us. And we can read it, we can hold it, we can know it, we can continue to journey with it, and then we can hold on to it when we need it most. Second Peter, Peter says the same thing. He says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from a prophet's own understanding. It, it did not come from man. He could not breathe in that way. He could not make it resuscitate in that way. He could not give it its formation of life in that way. Only God could do that. So not even the prophets, the ones that were revered and the ones that had this, this, this direct word from God in which he set them on this course and path and purpose to speak God's word. Even those guys that did not originate with them. It did not come from their own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, which breath also in its connotation means spirit. So by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God, not as God, because no man has the understanding or the initiative to create objective truth. That comes from this eternal God who breathed it out. I want to say this because this goes back to what we said last week. And I was riding in this morning and, and me and Rob Chris were talking about this idea and, and, and this thing. And he was asking me about how that landed on me and how I was shaped by all that. And, and honestly, this all comes out of God convicting me, beating me up with these truths, teaching me, helping me. And so when I say that about we seek feeling, so we seek validation, not truth often naturally, um, I think it's because we think we bring something to the table when it comes to God's word. And we do, we bring our minds and we bring our hearts and we should bring this willingness and desire to learn. But I sometimes get into the frame, I don't know if you do this, but I get into the frame that the Bible is inspired because I'm inspired by it. And that's not always the case. It's not the case at all. The Bible is inspired apart from the way I feel about it. So just because certain parts of scripture or certain things about the Bible or the Bible as a whole doesn't necessarily move or give me the jollies or inspire me in the way that I want or desire doesn't mean that it's not inspired still. 
Doesn't mean that it's not true. Doesn't mean that it's not truth just because I might not feel the way about it that I do. And that's important for us to know because that means it's a source of truth that we can trust because it comes from apart from us. There are, you're gonna have, when you read the Bible, if you, if you don't read the Bible or if you've never read the Bible before and you want to start, I pray that you will. Or you've only read certain parts. There are parts of scripture I get that resonate with you more than others. That you are probably more apt to get more out of John, let's say, than Leviticus. But just because Leviticus might be a little hard for you to read the first time and and when you start walking through those Levitical laws and you're like, why did they do this? And what was this for? Don't be tempted. And, And I try not to be tempted to say, well, this doesn't matter and this is not inspired because it doesn't inspire me. It's inspired because it comes from God. Apart from how I feel about it. That's why it's truth. That's why it sets me free and you free. He gets down and he, he makes a couple of distinctions. And, and then, uh, then we're out. He says it's for teaching. So the Bible is profitable. It is effective for teaching. It instructs us on belief and practice. So the Bible is not just there to correct our false beliefs. And it's not just there to teach us doctrine and theology, which it does. The Bible is a theological book and a doctrinal book. So if you ever encounter somebody that says, I don't want to learn theology, I want to learn the Bible, that is an incorrect and illogical statement. So it is deeply theological. It's deeply doctrinal. It is there to help us walk in belief, to form our beliefs, to shape our beliefs but it's also there to shape our practice too. Don't you like to, to not only be informed in the, what you believe, but also informed in how you live your life and to take that belief and to live it out while the Bible is effective and profitable for teaching us that and doing that. Then, then it says it's effective and profitable for reproof, which means that it clarifies our failures and leads us to a new sense of purpose. One of my biggest pet peeves when I was playing sports or really sometimes in life, and, and, I, and I hate that I've been guilty of this in my life, and, and I, I try as a checkpoint to always think about this when I'm teaching someone, whether it's one-on-one or in a group, is to clarify a problem or a failure and have no solution for it and to have no way in which to correct it and lead to a new sense of purpose. I couldn't stand it when I was just yelled at for being yelled at. I was just yelled at for the point of it. Just, just yell at me to yell at me. I, I never responded to that teaching in that way. I always wanted to know what I did wrong. But beyond knowing what I did wrong, I wanted to be shown what to do right so that I could have a new sense of purpose and could do it well. This is what the scriptures do for us. They form our beliefs. They help us practice those beliefs. And then when we fail or mess up, and we do so much, God's grace through his word leads us to a new sense of purpose by not only showing us our failure, but showing us how to correct it. For correction, it restores us. What what does it mean to be corrected? It restores us to the right place. And tells us how to stay there. Oh my goodness. How many of you have kids? How many of you have children? We have kids. We have a support group right after. It's, 
so last night I got the, uh, the full brunt of this understanding of what it means to correct in disciplining my daughter, I went in there with this notion of, again, I, I want this to stop because this is wrong or it's inconveniencing me and Bonnie. And it's the poor motivation. It's the wrong motivation for correction. I, I really, at the end of the day, want her heart to change. And when her heart changes, then the behavior changes. And she grows. There's a new sense of purpose. But as I came, I, you know, went into this situation, not wanting to do this at all, but wanting to correct. But coming out, I read this again last night when we were going to bed and just, you know, breezing over it one more time. And I stopped on this and where it says that the Bible, the truth, restores us to the right place, but not only restores us to the right place, not only does it reproof lead us to the right place, it, it restores us, it corrects us corrects us. We, we turn and walk another way. But it also helps us stay there. So when you're disciplining your kids or you're correcting someone at work or you happen to be the boss or whatever it may be, maybe go with that restorative idea of correction. Not just punitive, meaning not just to do it just to, to correct or to yell or to make it better for you and me. But to go with this restorative idea that it corrects us to the right place. And then because it has the power to do so in and of itself, it allows us to stay there and walk forward. That's what the scriptures and the truth does for us. It's not just, it's not punitive in that way. Some people, some people communicate that it is. Well, I don't like the Bible because it's a a group of do's and don'ts. Oh, if, if that's your view of the scriptures, then I submit to you that you're missing it that it is there from this eternal God, this objective true source, the only one for our good, for his glory, to correct those he loves and to restore us to that right place that is not only bringing glory to him, but it's good for us. But not only that, it, it helps us stay there. We have course corrected. And he says, it's also for training in righteousness. So this idea of training, love that word, love the training word better than equipping word because the training word means it's ongoing. It's consistently leading us to a holy lifestyle. So righteousness means right living, right path. Righteousness, holiness, the the greatest desire that God has for us in our lives. That the scriptures, if we read them, if we go to his truth, will consistently train us and lead us to this lifestyle and help us stay there. It's effective for it. It's really profitable for it. And then the last thing, this is my favorite part, and I'm glad I'm ending on this. It may be complete and equipped for every good work. So that, that means that all of us who will seek truth, who will discover it from the only truth source that we have, and that is this one true eternal God who gave us the scriptures, all scripture is profitable that it will give us the absolute ability to do what God calls us to and to keep doing it. It's one thing to try to do something you don't have the ability to do. And you know what? In and of ourselves, we don't have the ability. I cannot legislate and govern my own life. 
I'm subjective. I need an objective truth from beyond me to do that. What's great about the scriptures is that it's, it's whole. So it teaches me, it shows me my failures, but it also sends me to a new purpose. It corrects me and then pushes me toward what I did wrong and knowing not to do that again. And then it consistently trains me in the right way to live so that I can have the absolute ability to do what God calls us to and to keep doing it. So I can have the absolute ability, hone in for this, the absolute ability to be the husband that God wants me to be, to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That is some intense love and passion. To to be the right kind of wife that God calls me to be. To be the right parent the Lord wants me to be. To have the absolute ability to be the right friend the absolute ability to be in community together, pushing toward the same purpose that God has given us. The absolute ability to be the right coworker, to be the right boss, to be the right business owner. The absolute ability to engage in the way that God wants us to engage. The absolute ability not to be divisive. The absolute ability not to gossip the absolute ability not to be a hindrance to something God wants to do instead of a blessing to something God wants to do. The absolute ability to be a true encouragement in a way that God calls us to be an encouragement. And don't we all need encouragement? The absolute ability. The absolute ability to live a holy lifestyle. When God says, hey, you, uh, in any situation... I give you the power through my spirit and the means to escape. He says, through the training in righteousness, through truth in my word, I give you the absolute ability to walk away from something that would destroy your life. And then help your friend do it. Help your spouse do it. I have the absolute ability with God's help and his truth that he has given to us to overcome addiction, to walk through the hard process of restoration and to live restored. So this is what we know about God's truth in the scriptures. I'll leave you with this quote from Paul David Tripp, an author, a counselor, and a pastor who said this. I heard this on a video about a year ago and It came to my mind this week when I was thinking about this. So this was kind of a late addition. And then I scrambled to find it, watched the video again, and I wanted to give this to you because this is really, really important when it comes to the scriptures and to truth and to living this out. It is dangerous to think that because I know a thing, I am that thing. Because I can communicate an idea, I have submitted myself to that idea and can live in the context of it. Knowledge does not inevitably mean maturity. Hey, Bible scholars in the room, just because we may think we know a thing does not mean you are that thing. I have submitted myself 
to an idea in the context of it means that I am living it out, that I'm not just good at talking about it and doing blogs and preaching and teaching and devotionals and all the things that we like to do as Bible scholars and people and even coaching or imparting into our friends' lives or whatever it may be. May we be better at living in the context of and in light of God's truth than we are at talking about it. Because the knowledge of the scriptures does not inevitably mean that you are mature in the word. In fact, unfortunately, some of the most dangerous, destructive people know it very well and can quote it pretty good. But there is some kind of disconnect between that and their life. May that not be true of us at all. May our knowledge of the word, may our passion to know it and to experience it and let it live in us bring us to maturity in our lives. And may there not be, yes, we're going to mess up. There's going to be times in which that's going to be glaring. That's the beauty of correction in the scriptures. But may we be known more for how we live God's word than how we talk about it. Father, we need your help.